Let me tell you why you're here. You're here because you know something. What you know you can't explain. But you feel it. You felt it your entire life. But there's something wrong with the world. You don't know what it is, but it's there. friends and welcome to the secret podcast at service of change where we challenge reality question that which we've been taught in hopes of inspiring a new direction of thought to bring about change i'm your host dennis nappy the second with service of change on this episode of the secret podcast i'm going to be jumping into a document several multiple documents known as the pentagon papers for those of you a little bit older those of you who are alive during the vietnam war era this should ring to you for those in the conspiracy world this should jump out as well what the pentagon papers are were the the whistle blowing acts of one man who brought to light the lies and deception surrounding the vietnam war and the just the thousands of lives that were lost as a result of that conflict I'm going to jump into this show tonight uh, for several reasons. Um, It it really caught me off guard. I've heard this referred to in many of the conspiracy channels, how they they use the term false flag. And I take it with a grain of salt because I haven't had time to look into all of this. And I think we get carried away with some of the stuff that's out there. But this I came across in a high school history book. And I started doing some digging and I found some very credible mainstream sources and I spoke to people who were around when this, this actually happened. This is a real thing. And I think it warrants our attention and I'm going to get into my reasons why once I start talking about this very important subject in United States history. I think it's something that we all need to be aware of and I think it's something that needs to be brought back up right now for the sheer fact that this is something we need to be mindful of, something that is possible in the world we live in today. Before I do that, I want to jump into the news. Some things came across my feed. A lot of stuff going on with space. Before I jump into the space stuff, I came across an article from The Independent. It says, Mismatch between the way our senses evolved and modern world is making us ill, experts warm. So it starts off, the ape that's in us, in quotes, developed a taste for sugary fruits that were only available sometimes. Our eyesight was not designated, designed for staring at computers for hours in artificial light. And pollutant, pollution is damaging our sense of smell. I'll have this linked up in the show notes as well. You can read what this article discusses. But it's an interesting read how the way we're choosing to evolve our world is not 
in harmony with the natural world around us and therefore it's making us ill. We have we have constant access to sugar and that's having a negative impact on our bodies, especially with these artificial sugars that are going on and staring at computer screens is is making us ill as well. And last week, if you listen to last week's show, this further supports, this is why I grabbed this article today, this further supports what I was talking about, the dangers of merging with technology. Elon Musk was talking about, hey, we need to merge with technology or become obsolete because AI is taking over. This, I think, further supports that. It's take We are so far removed from our natural state. Now, where is that balance? I mean, we are evolving in some fascinating ways. You know, in some instances, we're controlling that the direction of that evolution but I think that we need to be mindful of just how we're doing that and, and where we're going. And this talks about how, how we are becoming ill. Um, you know, and if we look at that, it talks about diabetes is up, obesity is up, uh, eyesight is getting worse. Uh, you know, uh, percentage-wise, statistically, um, you know, and that's due to a lot of the environmental changes that we're contributing to. All right, moving on. The next one, this was a big deal. This comes to us directly from the NASA website. NASA's Kepler mission announces largest collection of planets ever discovered. This was pretty cool. NASA's Kepler mission has verified 1,284 new planets, the single largest finding of planets to date. This article released directly from NASA talks about a whole bunch of uh, their findings. Um, in July 2015, planet candidate Canalung, which identified 4,302 potential planets. For 1,284 of the candidates, the probability of being a planet is greater than 99%. This goes into their criteria of how the, the data they're looking at gives the probability of it actually being a planet. So 1,000, what was that number? 1,284 of that 4,000 they found are 99% sure that it's an actual planet. The, the part that everybody is buzzing about, let me find the actual quote here. It's towards the end of the article. Uh, let's see here. Uh, the newly validated batch of planets, nearly 550, could be rocky planets like Earth, based on their size. Nine of these orbit in their sun's habitable zone, which is the distance from a star where orbiting planets can have surface temperatures that allow liquid water to pool. With the addition of these nine, 21 exoplanets now are known to be members of this exclusive group. Now, these planets are within 40 light years from our solar system, which puts them pretty close in our own backyard, I would say, at least in terms of uh, space distance. But nine of them are in that habitable zone which means they could potentially have life similar to our own. Now, again, I suspect that I suspect that we already have knowledge that there's life out there that and that life has visited the planet Earth. I think that's a strong possibility. Um, but we're we're getting closer to a mainstream discovery. I think we're going to continue to see evidence mountain build until ultimately we're going to say, hey, we found microbial life not so far away, or we found signs of life. I think it's coming. I'd, I'd say within our lifetimes, within the next 10 years, I think we're going to find something. And I think it's going to be fascinating, but I think that in reality, we're, we're much further ahead in that discovery than we than we see in the mainstream. Moving on to the next article, this one comes out of out of Reuters. Trump asks NASA to explore putting a crew on rockets debut flight. This is dated February twenty fourth, two 
2017. The Trump administration has directed NASA to study whether it is feasible to fly astronauts on the debut flight of the agency's heavy lift rocket, a mission currently planned to be unmanned and targeted to launch in the late 2018, officials said on Friday. The study marks President Donald Trump's first step in shaping a vision for the National Aeronautics and Space Administration. Under former President Barack Obama, the U.S. Space Agency was working on a heavy lift space launch system rocket and Orion deep space capsule with the aim of sending astronauts to rendezvous with an asteroid in the mid-2020s, followed by a human expedition to Mars in the 2030s. The request for the study from the new Republican president's administration tweaks that plan by exploring whether to add a crew to an earlier test flight and perhaps setting the stage for a human return to the moon. I'll have the rest of this article linked in the show notes at serviceofchange.com. Between the private sector and the government sector, we are going back into space. We are going to explore. It's really going to be interesting to see what's happening. We just had, last week I covered it, I want to say it was China that was claiming within the next hundred years to have a city built on Mars. So the the future of our civilization is drastically Changing, And I think we just need to be mindful of how is that going to change and what challenges will we be facing in the future. Really interesting stuff. It's really exciting stuff. Also a little bit scary, though. So I continue to track that on the show. Checking out our friends at MUFON. This one is a uh, an interesting sighting that comes to us. An Ohio witness in Circleville reported watching what appeared to be an aircraft surrounding a UFO and shooting small objects at it, according to testimony in case 82064 from the Mutual UFO Network witness reporting database. The witness and his mother were driving out of the Columbus out of Columbus, moving south at 9 p.m. on February 13, 2017, when the incident began. And it goes on to explain his sighting and how it looked like they were at war up in the skies. Was it a UFO? Was it some military or government craft? Was it a trick of the light? Was it the witness's imagination or was it something else? Interesting stuff. Check it out. The show notes will be in at serviceofchange.com. All right, let's jump into these Pentagon papers. You know, I'm teaching a... I just moved into a new position at the high school I'm at and I'm teaching a history course and we're covering the Vietnam War, and as a veteran, as an American citizen, as a human being, I, I am just drawn to the more I, in order to teach it, I have to learn more about it. I've known the generalities of it j- just as, a, as an average American, but now that I'm teaching it, I'm really digging into this conflict, and uh, I'm just amazed at it. Number one, it, it was a horrible, horrible thing that happened. War is terrible as it is, but we were we were studying the booby traps that were used during this conflict, and my students were just appalled at, at what we what we came across. How um, the Viet Cong, the North Vietnamese, who were you know the communists, were coming down to the south where the U.S. forces were, 
uh, and fighting guerrilla style tactics. They had these advanced underground caverns, and they had they were notorious for these booby traps. And one of the one of the things they would do is they would take a, a, a viper or a poisonous snake, and they'd nail it to a tree or they'd nail it to a door. So when a U.S. soldier would either go to the door to knock on it or walk past the tree, the snake poisonous snake would bite him in the face and. If not kill him, severely, severely uh, injure him and wound him. They had punji sticks everywhere, which were sharpened bamboo sticks that they'd place that were very... They wouldn't kill the soldiers all the time necessarily, but they'd go right through a soldier's boot and his foot or go into their soldier's body. And a lot of times these sticks were dipped in feces, so then it would have infectious diseases crawling in them. They had... uh, just cement balls filled or, or with iron spikes uh, attached into them that would swing from the trees and crush bones and pierce flesh. And they wouldn't always kill the soldiers, and that wasn't the goal. The goal was to injure the soldiers and maim them, so then it would require more soldiers to, to deal with it. They had just these horrible traps, these deadfalls with sticks or wild animals at the bottom. And I mean, it, 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 when, I, when I was studying this and teaching this, it's hell. That must have been hell for these soldiers to go through it. And I'm saying this because of what I'm getting ready to talk about with this war. But the, the one of the driving theories with this beginning of this war, beginning of public American involvement in this war, was the domino theory. And basically the fear was that communism was going to spread like a virus, and if the South fell to the North, then communism would, you know, move into Cambodia and Laos, and, and it would just take over um, the entire world. Ultimately, communism would, like a set of dominoes, every nation would continue to fall as it grew in strength. So, we were trying to push it back and prevent communism. That's the story that was sold to the public, and we heard about. You know, the U.S. is is gradually building up their presence there. The, the initial goal was to. First, they divided the North and South. They divided the North to Communist North and South to, you know, to the Democratic South. They held elections. Things didn't go the way they wanted them to. So the U.S. said, we're going to have advisors there. We're going to train the South Vietnam, uh, South Vietnamese military to fight this war, to fight the communists. And we gradually increased our presence down there because the South Vietnamese were not up to the task of fighting the North Vietnamese and the Viet Cong. And then we had what was called the Gulf of Tonkin incident where, uh, you know, the, the North Vietnamese attacked American ships, which then gave President Johnson the authority to take any action necessary to uh, push back this enemy and, and fight and win this conflict. And I'm going to get into that as well. And this is the one that's talked about in many conspiracy circles. You hear the Gulf of Tonkin and the word false flag said synonymously. Again, that's one that I took with a grain of salt until I did my own research. Um, very interesting uh, how this may not have actually happened. And I went strictly for mainstream sources here that I'm going to share, which to me in this instance makes it that much more credible because it's, it's the mainstream who a lot of times we question their, the, you know, the party line that they're putting out there. But in this case, they're actually acknowledging Uh, everything that I just spoke about. So what were the Pentagon Papers? I'm looking here, going through Britannica.com. I'm just going to read from it. Uh, This was last updated June 13th, 2011. And and again, before I get into this, why am I doing this? Why am I talking about this? One, I think it's important for us to understand, uh, 
you know, this important part of history, especially now because what do they say? Those who don't study history are doomed to repeat it. Those who do study history are powerless as they sit back and watch those who didn't study it go forth and repeat it, something like that. I'm butchering the quote. But I've had conversations with people talking about, you know, I discuss my show with with people who aren't necessarily listeners, people I come into contact with uh, in various places, friends, family, work. And I've heard time and again people make the statement, I have, you know, I want to believe or I believe that our government is ultimately made up of good people and that they're trying their best to do what they believe is right. And I hear that a lot, and I don't know how much of that I believe anymore. Now, I want to be quite clear that I believe in America. I believe in the values and everything that America publicly stands for. I think that vision gets corrupted by our elected officials through the influences of hidden agendas and corporate interests and if we can go deeper into the conspiracy realm when you start talking with the works of David Icke and Jordan Maxwell off the deep end type of stuff but I tend to prescribe to a lot of that but I'm not getting into all that heavy stuff tonight I'm talking about just straight historical facts tonight but I think it's important because cognitive dissonance and if you're not sure what that is go back and listen to my show uh, talking about beliefs what you believe is wrong is the name of the show I I did this one uh, several months back But cognitive dissonance is basically when in the face of solid facts and evidence that directly contradict something you believe, even in the face of those facts, your mind finds a way to rationalize away those facts to hold on to your beliefs. And that's something we need to be mindful of. We need to have a complete and total open mind because the world once again is in another state of public chaos. And it has been for quite some time. Sometimes it's worse. Sometimes it's not so bad. I'm sharing this story because I want us to understand. I want my listeners, I want the people you're in communication with to understand that this is possible. That governments lie. That the American government, that the people who represent the American government aren't always honest. They have their own Agendas, And I want us to just be mindful of that in case something happens in the near future, in the immediate future, in the long term. You don't immediately reject the possibility that not everything is what it seems. That you don't buy the party line that when a, when a story comes out, you question it. I would love to say we need to have blind faith and just trust in what we're being told, but we can't do that anymore. We are beyond that point, and this is of the utmost importance, and that's why I'm sharing this, because this is documented history, and I want us to understand that it has happened in the past, it has happened in the recent past, and it can and most likely will happen again, and it's important for us to understand that. So the Pentagon Papers, back to uh, Britannica, Papers that contain a history of the U.S. role in Indochina from World War II until May of 1968 and that were commissioned in 1967 by U.S. Secretary of Defense Robert S. McNamara. They were turned over without authorization 
to the New York Times by Daniel Ellsberg, a senior research associate at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology Center for International Studies. I listened to a talk by Ellsberg today. This is me speaking now, no longer from the Britannica. Ellsberg was a whistleblower. And during this talk, this was uploaded in 2008. And Ellsberg was warning warning about, uh, I don't know when the date of this discussion was, it was uploaded in 2008, but he was warning about the pending war with Iraq. So I'm guessing this talk was from 2003, 2003-2004 time frame. And he was warning of the parallels that he was seeing with a lot of the deception that was going on as far as what the American public was being told. He made the comparison to how the American public was lied to to gain support to get us involved in Vietnam. And he talked about how the American public was being lied to to get us involved in the Iraq war. So going back to, uh, and what's interesting, I'm sorry, what's interesting about Daniel Ellsberg, is that White House tapes were later released of President Nixon stating, get this man in jail. He tried to set this man up to have him arrested, to discredit him, to use the media to discredit Daniel Ellsberg. Now, we all know what happened with Nixon. You know, Obviously, his record's not squeaky clean, but at the same time, he was our president of the United States. And instead of owning up to this information that was being leaked out, he tried to have this whistleblower, this this American citizen, this caring, compassionate American citizen discredited instead of owning up to it. So again, I want us to be mindful that people that make it to the office of president are capable of dishonesty. Now, before we jump into this any further, again, another train of thought I I need to address because we're so quick to pigeonhole into one line of thinking, oh, this is all good, oh, this is all bad. I wasn't there. I don't know the whole story. I'm not going to be able to present the whole story this evening. Sometimes things go on in secret because they have to. Uh, As a former intelligence agent, I understand the importance of classifying information. Sometimes we can't tell the public why we're doing it, because of sources and methods. If we tell the enemy that we have this information, well, there was only one person in the world who had that information. Now they knew who our source is. Now they kill our source. Now we don't get that information anymore. That's one reason. The other piece would be methods. If we tell the enemy that we have this specific piece of information, they are then going to understand that, wow, We are compromised in a way that we didn't think we're going to be compromised. We're now going to take countermeasures. For example, back in the day, the enemy didn't know we had satellites that could take pictures. So they would have their stuff out in the open. Once they realized we have satellites, now they take measures to conceal their movements to hide from satellite tracking. That's what I'm talking about, the technology, if they understood the technology. So I understand the reason for classifying things in that nature. What frustrates me is when it comes to engaging in war, I feel that we should be completely transparent with the American people. We shouldn't just gain their support because the president believes that it's important that we go to war. We, We need to be honest with the American people because it's us It's our sons and our daughters and our fathers and our mothers and brothers and sisters who are the ones that are fighting these wars. It's not our politicians. It's not our rich corporate executives. 
It's us. And we deserve to know why, exactly why, the truth as to why we are going to war. As a veteran, I feel very strongly about that. As a, as a soldier, we don't always know why we're fighting. We, we don't have that luxury. We have to trust in our leaders that the reasons we are doing the things we're doing are in the best interest of our country and our reasons are good. They uphold the American values. And when we later learn that that's not the issue, that's very difficult to swallow because we lose people we care about. We see horrible things. We do horrible things. And then we come home and we try to cope with everything that we've been a part of. So those reasons need to be just. So jumping back into these Pentagon Papers, the 47-volume history consisting of approximately 3,000 pages of narrative and 4,000 pages of appended documents took 18 months to complete. Ellsberg, who worked on the project, had been an ardent early supporter of the U.S. role in Indochina, but by the project's end had become seriously opposed to U.S. involvement. He felt compelled to reveal the nature of the U.S. participation and leaked major portions of the papers to the press. And he talks about how in 1964 he had just begun his his time full-time position as an advisor to the Undersecretary of Defense. And on his first day there, he heard the discussion of the Gulf of Tonkin attacks and the and the then the passing of the Gulf of Tonkin Resolution. The Gulf of Tonkin Resolution gave the president the authority to take any action he felt necessary without the approval of Congress to stabilize things in the Vietnam conflict. And I'll get into that a little bit later, but what what Ellsberg was saying was that the Gulf of Tonkin never happened, at least not the way it was reported. The Gulf of Tonkin was the incident that was used, again, to gain American support. Stated that the North Vietnamese attacked U.S. ships in an act of war, and therefore we need to engage in war, and we need to start obliterating North Vietnam with bombs. And they bombed them quite heavily. Going back to the Britannica, on June 13, 1971, the New York Times began publishing a series of articles based on the study, which was classified as top secret by the federal government. After the third daily installment appeared in the Times, the U.S. Department of Justice obtained in U.S. District Court a temporary restraining order against further publication of the classified material, contending that further public dissemination of the material would cause immediate and irreparable harm to U.S. national defense interests. The Times, joined by the Washington Post, which also was in possession of the documents, fought the order through the courts for the next 15 days, during which time publication of the series was suspended on June 30, 1971, and was regarded as one of the most significant prior restraint cases in history. The U.S. Supreme Court, in a 6-3 decision, freed the newspapers to resume publishing the material. The court held that the government had failed to justify restraint of publication. Now, this is interesting. What did these papers reveal? And according to the Britannica source, the Pentagon Papers revealed that the Harry S. Truman administration gave military aid to France in its colonial war against the communist-led Viet Minh, thus directly involving the United States in Vietnam. 
So there was a war prior to the United States getting involved. It was against the French and the North Vietnamese. Well, at that point, just Vietnam, the Viet Minh. And they were trying to run France out of the country. The U.S. was secretly funding France in that war, which we were unaware of. Back to the, back to the uh, article here. In 1954, President, President Dwight D. Eisenhower decided to prevent a communist takeover of South Vietnam and to undermine the new communist regime in North Vietnam, that President John F. Kennedy transformed that policy of limited-risk gamble that he had inherited into a policy of broad commitment, that President Lyndon B. Johnson intensified covert warfare against North Vietnam and began planning to wage overt war in 1964, a full year before the depth of U.S. involvement was publicly revealed and that Johnson ordered the bombing of North Vietnam in 1965 despite the judgment of the U.S. intelligence community that it would not cause the North Vietnamese to cease their support of the Viet Cong insurgency in South Vietnam. Hmm. So despite what the intel community was saying, the president went and furthered his own agenda anyway. Sound familiar? The more I study history, the more I see it repeating. That's why we need to be aware of this. That's why I'm not just saying the Gulf of Tonkin resolution was a false flag operation. Do your homework. We need to understand the specifics of this. I'm giving you the facts. I will be giving you the resources to do your own resource research because there's patterns here that we can start to see. The release of the Pentagon Papers stirred nationwide, indeed, international controversy because it occurred after several years of growing dissent over the legal and moral justification for intensifying U.S. actions in Vietnam. The disclosures and their continued publication, despite top-secret classification, were embarrassing to the administration of President Richard M. Nixon, who was preparing to seek re-election in 1972. So distressing were these revelations that Nixon authorized unlawful efforts to discredit Ellsberg, efforts that came to light during the investigation of the Watergate scandal. Actually, the same people he used, this is me talking again, not the article, but from what I understand, the same people he used to try to discredit Ellsberg were the, Ellsberg, excuse me, were the same that he used in the Watergate scandal. I'd need to look further into that one, but that's another part for you to go in and look for. The papers were subsequently published in the book form as the Pentagon Papers 1971. However, the leaked documents were incomplete and certain portions remained classified until 2011 when the full study was released to the public and that was actually on the 40-year anniversary that they released those full documents. So that was another, what, 4,000 pages? 2011. That's six years ago that they still held this information as classified. And I get it. There's times when information needs to be classified. And I am so far removed from that lifestyle right now. Things have changed so much since I was in. I am definitely more civilian than soldier. But as a civilian, as an American citizen, I'll say it again, we need more transparency. I don't want these covert wars I don't want our soldiers in harm's way. I don't buy that that's the best way to protect American interests because what I'm seeing is that we're creating more, more terrorists, more people angry at the United States. And again, I'm not involved in this anymore and it, it's different when you're on the ground. I just, I, I think we need to really be aware of what's going on. 
in the world around us. So let's talk about the Gulf of Tonkin. Now, again, these popped up in my high school history book. I I didn't expect that because when you listen to the conspiracy channels, there's this big cover-up, there's this big, you know, we're indoctrinating kids in schools not to understand this. Now, I will say these were tiny little blurbs off on the side of the page, the Pentagon Papers and the Gulf of Tonkin, where they stated, you know, it never happened, you know, what the Pentagon Papers were. But they were there. And I pulled it out, and I'm going over this in great detail with my students. But let's talk about this Gulf of Tonkin incident. Again, basically it states that there were, uh, on August 2nd, 1964, and August 4th, there were two separate attacks on uh, U.S. spy uh, ships or destroyers. Um, Let's see here. By August 1964, the Johnson administration believed that the escalation of the U.S. presence in Vietnam was the only solution. The post-DM South proved no more stable than it had been before his ouster. The South Vietnamese troops were generally ineffective. In addition to supporting ongoing South Vietnamese raids in the countryside, I'm going too fast here. The U.S. Navy stationed two destroyers, the Maddox and the Turner Joy, in the Gulf of Tonkin to bolster these actions. They reported an attack by North Vietnamese patrol boats on August 2nd and a second attack on August 4th. Doubts later emerged as to whether or not the attack against Turner Joy had taken place. This is from history.state.gov. Now, if I go to history.com through the History Channel, it states later when more information about the Tonkin incident became available, many concluded that Johnson and his advisors had misled Congress into supporting the expansion of the war. Again, my history book states it as well. Um, I'll have the links to that book in my show notes uh, and the title of that book as well. And I've read other sources that spell it out in much greater detail. There is a documentary that I have a link to um, with interviews from people that were involved in this issue saying, yep, this never happened. We were never attacked. Uh, I found another article. Let's see if I have it up here. If not, I will in the show notes where they actually interviewed one of the commanders responsible for this incident from the North Vietnamese side. Uh, he said there was there was an incident on the second, but he said there was not an incident on the fourth um, basically saying the second incident was fabricated. So why is this significant? This attack happened, and President Johnson then had, and I lost my place of it, then had the Gulf of Tonkin Resolution passed. Now I'm going from ourdocuments.gov here. What is the Gulf of Tonkin Resolution? The Disjoint Resolution of Congress, H.J. Res. 1145, dated August 7, 1964, gave President Lyndon Johnson authority to increase U.S. involvement in the war between North and South Vietnam. On August 4, 1964, President Lyndon Johnson announced that two days earlier, U.S. ships in the Gulf of Tonkin had been attacked by the North Vietnamese. Johnson dispatched U.S. planes against the attackers and asked Congress to pass a resolution to support his actions. The joint resolution to, quote, promote the maintenance of international peace and security in Southeast Asia passed on August 7th, with only two senators, Wayne Morse and Ernst Gruning, dissenting and became the subject of great political controversy in the, in the course of the undeclared war that followed. 
The Tonkin resolution stated that Congress approves and supports the determination of the president as commander-in-chief to take all necessary measures to repeal any armed attack against the forces of the United States and to prevent any further aggression. As a result, President Johnson and later President Nixon relied on the resolution as the legal basis for their military policies in Vietnam. As public resistance to the war heightened, the resolution was repealed by Congress in January 1971. So what happened here was Johnson took this incident and said, our ship was attacked. These are communist people. We are in some trouble here. He took that incident and he presented that to Congress. And Congress gave him the authority to take any military action he deemed appropriate in Vietnam. What did he do? He started with the saturation bombing, dropping thousands of tons of bombs on North Vietnam. I want to say it was for three years straight, five years straight, I forget. Just this massive, massive bombing campaign. Fragmentation bombs where the bombs would go off and the shrapnel would go everywhere. Killing not only the enemy, but also innocent people. So many people died during this conflict. And the reason we went was a lie. It reminds me of that movie, I think it's called Green Zone, with, with um, Matt Damon. I wanted to say Jason Bourne, with Matt Damon. And it, it involves the Gulf War. And it's about the reasons that we were in the Gulf War. It talks about the weapons of mass destruction, and they never found the weapons and the the political guys on the ground were saying, well, it doesn't matter. We're here. We've won. We've got our puppet in power. What does it matter at this point? And at the, at the end, he screams at him. He says, the reasons we go to war always matter. Who's going to believe us next time we need this authorization to do something like this? It's important. The reasons we go to war are important. It's absolutely correct. The president should not have the authority to determine if we send troops in unless, as he already does, unless we are under attack. He should be able to, to have that authority to make that immediate response. But to declare war or to, to enact a war, we should have the approval of Congress. Why? Congress, in theory, is elected by the people and is supposed to represent the will of of the people. We have checks and balances for a reason. That car blanche authority should not be given to one single person. Is this starting to sound familiar? Is this starting to, to see history repeating itself? That's why I'm saying it. That's why this is so important. That's why I'm sharing this because this is something we can go back and review and we could say, well, this happened. So before we make the statement of, well, I don't think it would happen again. I, I think that we have good people in power. Not always. So we need to be mindful. We need to, this helps break the cognitive dissonance in understanding that I love America, but bad things happen. We get people that make poor decisions, even if they have good intentions. They may just make poor decisions, and I'm being polite here in saying that. I'm not going off the deep end on this, on this episode. Well, why is that a big deal? Let's talk about casualties. And this comes from archives.gov. Okay, so this is again an official government site, casualties in Vietnam. Total of 58,220 deaths as a result of this conflict, this war, this undeclared war in Vietnam. Nine, I'm gonna I'm gonna average these out here. So these numbers, if you're doing math in your head, will not add up to the fifty-eight thousand. I'll have the link with the specifics there. But roughly 9,100 died by accident, 1,200 were declared dead, 
5,000 died of wounds, 236 died through homicide, 938 were killed for illness, 40,000, let me say that again, 40,934 killed in action, 32 were presumed dead, body remains later recovered, 91 were presumed dead, body remains not recovered, 382 died from self-inflicted wounds, total of 58,220 U.S. service members were killed. This is really neat. They have a lot of statistics that based on the countries they were killed in, the state of record that they were that these soldiers and, and uh, service members were from. Really, really fascinating stuff to take a look at. It's got it broken down by how many died each year during the conflict. Male, there were eight females that were killed in that conflict as well. Check this out. It'll be in the show notes. Let's talk about injuries, casualties. Okay. Hostile deaths, 47,378. This is history-world.org. This isn't the government, no longer the government site. Hostile deaths, 47,378. Non-hostile deaths, 10,800. Total deaths, 58,202. And the other one's 58,220, so there's a slight transposition of numbers there, but... 58,200 is where we're at, roughly. Eight nurses died. One was killed in action. Uh, I want to look at the injuries here. Here we go. Wounded, 303,704. Of those, 153,329 had to be hospitalized. 150,000 of them, 150,375, were injured, but they required no hospital care. Severely disabled, 75,000 were severely disabled. Of that 75,000, approximately 23,000 of them were 100% 100 disabled. 5,283 lost limbs. 1,081 sustained multiple amputations. Amputation or crippling wounds to the lower extremities were 300% higher in World War II and 70%. This is just a statistic that doesn't apply to what I'm talking about. But again, these links will be here. Missing in action means they don't know where they were. They could be dead. They could be prisoner. 2,338. Prisoners of war, 766. 114 of those died in captivity. This was a horrible thing. It was an absolutely horrible thing. And the way that we handled this, I think, you have 2020 hindsight, but as a nation, I, I just taught a lesson on the draft lottery, which was like an episode of watching the lottery, drawing the balls out, picking the numbers. is horrible. The anxiety. Now, I'm going to take the, the Dennis Nappy Truth Seekers Seeker podcast spin on this. And if this makes you uncomfortable, I invite you to go back and listen to my other shows. But when I talk about, it seems like we're always at war. When I talk about the archons and the fact that we're only able to perceive a small amount of everything that exists in this universe because of the way we're built, our senses don't receive everything, that there is most likely other intelligences, other forces that live just beyond human perception. I propose that those, not me, but me and other researchers have come to the conclusion that there is a parasite that feeds off of human energy. 
go back and listen to my show talking about social coherence uh, and the electromagnetic field that is put out. We can measure this field now. But there's something that feeds off of this energy. Specific frequencies of that energy, the frequencies of fear, sadness, and anxiety. Now, we know we had, where's that number? 58,220 or 202, whatever that number, correct number is. Over 58,000, Just this is just the United States alone, service members killed as a result of this conflict. Now think about the suffering of all of their families. Let's say they just knew five people that cared about them. That's 290,000 people that will be suffering, experiencing sadness and putting out that, those feelings of fear and anxiety. Not to mention the millions of soldiers that did their time going through this war while they were away, people were worrying about the more fear and anxiety being put out there in this energetic soup that these things can feed off of. Let's take the injuries, serious injuries, 153,000 plus the 75,000 that were severely disabled, all the people that care about them, all that suffering, that's more of this, as I called it, as Robert Monroe calls it, louche, going out there into the atmosphere to be fed upon. It's a constant production of louche. Go back and listen to my show about Robert Monroe and louche and the talks of Carlos Castaneda and everything they talked about with this energy being put out and these predators that are out there. It's as if this is a factory and this energy is being put out. And again, I try to keep this away from the fringe stuff for those that aren't quite comfortable with this subject because I want to just keep it, but I have to address it. If, if you understand or if you, if you have listened to what I've talked about with the energy stuff and the parasite stuff, well, war now makes sense. It makes a whole lot of sense because you're, you're feeding these parasites. Just some really scary statistics out there. And, and it's a horrible thing that happened. And when these soldiers came home, like I said, they suffered, they were lonely, they weren't taken care of. We had a horrible chemical called an herbicide called Agent Orange. The, the goal of releasing Agent Orange was to kill off the vegetation so we could find the Viet Cong soldiers who were experts at camouflage and hiding. We killed the vegetation, not we, but uh, Agent Orange killed the vegetation so the soldiers could see where they were hiding and we could take out the enemy. Who made Agent Orange? The one and only Monsanto. Soldiers later came home reporting instances of cancer and, and horrible diseases as a result of the Agent Orange that uh, the U.S. government denied that Agent Orange was the cause of that cancer. They did not get the treatment that they were entitled to for service to their country. There was an investigation that was done. I covered this in my vaccine discussion. There was an investigation that was done. One of the people heading up this investigation into what was Agent Orange directly responsible for the injuries that were resulted you know, during this war. Intentionally, the claim goes, intentionally overlooked inf the information that would have proven the connection. She then finds herself in a nice cushy job at the CDC. And her, and her name escapes right now, but it's in that podcast. And she plays a major role in telling us that vaccines were safe during her tenure later ended up taking a job with Merck, making the vaccines. Do you see how all this is connected? 
there's just such a, a scary web where suffering and death seem to follow it. So we need to be aware. We need to be cautious. We need to get, a, if, if, if those of you out there that think politics and voting is the key, then you need to find a way, we all need to find a way to stop fighting amongst ourselves. And we need to f start electing representatives who are going to represent us, not just the president, from the local level all the way up. That's where we need to go with this. Be mindful. Be aware. Do your homework. All right, friends. I hope this wasn't too much of a downer. Uh, you know, sometimes the truth hurts. But I think it's necessary for us to take the time to reflect on this and to be aware of this. I'm Dennis Snappy II. This has been the Secret Podcast with Service of Change, where small changes among the masses can have a massive impact around the world. I encourage you to be that change. Never stop questioning and keep an open mind. Thank you. Thank you.